to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be having an economic update as the United States seems to be heading toward yet another recession. I was going to be talking about uh, developments in Somalia. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, there's some bad news for Elon Musk as his takeover of Twitter seems to be in limbo. CNBC reports that Musk's aerospace company SpaceX apparently paid $250,000 in severance to a flight attendant in 2018 to settle an allegation that Musk engaged in sexual misconduct against her. This was divulged in a report from Bloomberg's Business Insider. Musk shot back on Twitter saying that the Business Insider article was, quote, a politically motivated hit piece, end quote. But Business Insider reported that it moved its own publication deadline after Musk asked them to hold off publishing the report to give him more time to respond. But he never made further comment on the allegations or the article. So now, according to Musk, the article is a political motivated hit piece. And yeah, seems odd to me. Musk also says there's a lot more to the story and offered as a sort of defense saying, quote, if I were inclined to engage in sexual harassment, this is unlikely to be the first time in my entire 30 year career that it comes to light, end quote. That's not really a defense, especially since there is actually a long history of sexual harassment and abuse at Musk's companies. Now, the current allegation against Musk stems from an incident in 2016 with an unnamed woman, woman who was a flight attendant for SpaceX at the time. Musk allegedly asked her to provide him a full body massage. Now, if you think that sounds weird, it is. SpaceX apparently employs in-house massages as a benefit for executives. And according to the declaration regarding the incident from the friend who corroborated it, the flight attendant was encouraged to take massage classes by her supervisors. You know, there are licensed masseuses that you can hire to do that kind of thing, but no, SpaceX supervisors encouraged a woman employee to take massage classes so she could provide the service to executives. And yes, that is disgusting. And of course, the allegation gets more graphically salacious, and I won't go into the details here, but after refusing Musk's sexual or alleged sexual advances and feeling that she was retaliated against for not playing along, the flight attendant hired an employment lawyer to file a complaint against Musk and SpaceX in 2018, which is why her friend was contacted to corroborate the claims, which she did. As a result of the legal action taken by the former flight attendant, Musk is said to have attended a session with SpaceX's legal representative, a mediator, and the former flight attendant, which resulted in Musk, the company, and the former flight attendant agreeing to a severance payment of $250,000 in November 2018 before the case would have gone to court, apparently. It's also alleged that the former flight attendant was required to 
sign a non-disclosure agreement, which is why she is not making any comment now. And she is alleged to have been made to promise not to go forward with the lawsuit. All by itself, that is bad. But even if one were to not believe any of that, one cannot and should not divorce that issue from the well-documented culture of harassment against women in Musk's companies. In December last year, the New York Times ran a piece in which it detailed the accounts of three women who interned at SpaceX who said they faced sexual harassment and unwanted advances from other interns as well as from men in more senior positions across a range of workplace incidents going as far back as 2012, some of which went without punishment. The Washington Post also reported around the same time that six Tesla workers in California filed lawsuits against Musk's electric vehicle company, alleging that a culture of sexual harassment existed where female employees were subjected to lewd comments and catcalling, physically intimate and unwanted touching and discrimination from male colleagues and supervisors. Are the sexual harassment allegations against Elon Musk true? I don't know. But I do know that it is clear that there is a culture in Musk's companies that is not safe for women. And a company's culture comes from the top. But in typical American capitalist faction, it is Elon Musk who is being cast as the victim in what is really a long-running scandal about his company's culture of exploitation and abuse of his female employees. The narrative in this latest Elon Musk scandal is how these not even new allegations could play on his bid to buy Twitter and how they're politically motivated left-wing attacks because Musk said he would vote Republican rather than why are people still defending this obscenely rich man who has created toxic work environments where sexual harassment against women has festered for years? Why are people still buying what this man is selling at the expense of women's safety, respect, and dignity? Capitalism should not outweigh a culture of abuse. But the fact that people are separating the latest allegation against Musk from his company's track record of abuses against women shows just how little most people care about other people when they have to choose between the people and the bosses. We cannot keep choosing and cheering for the bosses if we're going to defeat capitalism for all of our survival. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Dr. Linwood Tawheed, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. And 
Dr. Tawheed, uh, different uh, experts, uh, economists, and analysts are suggesting that the United States may very well be heading towards another recession in the next year. Uh, and this is concerning, I think, a number of uh, factors that have been impacting uh, uh, the economy of the U.S., I think both in recent years and for some time. And uh, it's it's uh, just like so many things, just sort of multifaceted and how it plays out, doctor. So I'm just curious, number one, uh, if you think uh, that we may be heading towards a recession in this country, and also uh, what do you think is behind it? Well, yes, I, I, I do think we are, we are heading into a recession. Uh, I think there, there are a number of factors. Uh, one of the factors is going to be the um, increase of interest rates that, that's going on and will continue to go on from the Federal Reserve. Uh, of course, we have inflation. Inflation is now at 8.3 percent, which is a, a high level, but it's accelerating. It's getting, it's uh, going higher each each uh, quarter, each month. And the Federal Reserve has announced that it will increase interest rates. Um, it um, uh, does that in order to decrease demand. Uh, so when interest rates go up, a uh, person's uh, housing purchases uh, decline. It's, it's, it's more expensive to get a mortgage. Uh, car purchases decline. Things that, that you would buy on credit, uh, that, that begins to decline, which decreases the demand in the economy. And, uh, you know, if, if this were a demand-driven inflation, that is, if we had too much money uh, in, in uh, circulating in the economy to, to purchase the goods that we had, then uh, increasing the interest rates would be, well, a thing to do. But, uh, but of course, increasing the interest rates uh, by the Fed also has the undesirable characteristic that it slows down spending. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the goal, but it also is undesirable because when spending slows down, then people start to lose their jobs, and so uh, this is a this is a, 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 a teeter totter, if you will. If you uh, increase the interest rates, then you get the other effect of slowing down the economy. Now, the Federal Reserve has indicated that it will uh, probably increase interest rates about five more times during this year, and it will continue to do so until the inflation rate gets down to two percent. Well, that's a long way to go, and the problem is this is not a demand-driven inflation. This is a lack of supply-driven inflation. And what I mean by that is, for example, uh, the supply chain crisis is with us. It will continue to be be with us through the end of this year. And increasing interest rates doesn't do anything to increase supply of goods. We We have a baby formula shortage. That's not because... Too many people are buying too much baby formula. It's because there's a shortage of baby formula. There's a shortage of other goods uh, coming from the rest of the world, particularly from China, as it's uh, uh, shutting down again to address COVID. And so we have we have a supply problem, and increasing interest rates won't help supply problem. In fact, it'll actually make it worse because companies will have uh, less investment in growth. And, uh, and production will, will slow down. And so what the Fed is doing, which is, which is the only thing the Fed can do, is to increase interest rates. But it's exactly the wrong thing uh, to be doing in, in a time of a supply crisis as opposed to a demand crisis. And so, uh, and so uh, increasing interest rates will slow the economy down 
I, I believe, into recessionary um, uh, area, and others are, are, are beginning to see that. I've been saying this for, for months, but others are beginning to say that uh, recession is coming. And I don't think it will do very much with inflation because the inflation is caused by supply, uh, a problem, not, not a demand problem. Yeah, and I, I get the feeling, Dr. Tawheed, that not only is the Fed doing the exact wrong thing that needs to be done at this moment, but the Biden administration is is doing the same thing with sending $40 billion in quite literally poor people's money to Ukraine uh, instead of addressing uh, any of the economic crises that you just laid out, particularly since people uh, understand that there is an economic issue in this country. People uh, are realizing that things are costing more. Uh, They're having to spend more money on typical consumer goods. Gas is at $4.57 a gallon nationwide. And, you know, of course, every year the price of gas goes up during the summer anyway because of summer travel. So that's probably going to happen still. I mean, What does the uh, uh, Biden administration's seemingly bottomless pit of spending to Ukraine for war, what does that factor into the economic uh, crisis that we are facing right now? Well, the last time, you know, when we when we have a recession coupled with inflation, uh, we call that combination stagflation, stagnant, stagnant economy with inflation. That's the, the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, the last time we went through a, a, a stagflation in this country was in the 1970s. Uh, there were two, two, two parts of that, two major parts of that. One was the, the oil supply shock where OPEC was, was just organizing and the OPEC nations uh, led by Saudi Arabia began to de- decrease the supply of oil. Uh, we had an oil shock. Uh, oil and gas shock coming from uh, sanctions on on Russia, and so that's in play. Uh, the other part of it was uh, in the 1970s was the inflation from the Vietnam War. Uh, we're spending lots of money building military equipment or paying for military equipment, so that that money is coming into the hands of of persons working in the military uh, uh, industry. Uh, but it's not. It, but you know that doesn't produce one new loaf of bread. It, it produces a cruise missile, or at the time, uh, you know, a, a ordinary, uh, uh, you know, artillery shell. But but that doesn't produce another loaf of bread to put on the shelf. And so people in, in that in that situation had had more money, uh, but 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 no additional bread. And so we had those two components of of stagflation during the 1970s. We have very similar components. Uh, coming into play now, and uh, the forty billion dollars, of course, that's going to Ukraine. Uh, understand, a significant part of that is going to purchase weapons. Uh, so, weapons manufacturers are, are, are doing quite well. Uh, with, um, in, in fact, they're cleaning out their own stockpiles of weapons, stockpiles of old weapons that they couldn't sell that are now being sold and, and sent to Ukraine. In addition, uh, Joe Biden says that you know that some of the money is going to go to to pay for um, uh, pensions for Ukrainians, for uh, pay for for soldiers. Uh, he said that you know ordinary Ukrainians need to have some some money in their pockets. The problem is that Ukrainians don't spend dollars in Ukraine; they have their own currency, and um, 
I, it's very doubtful because Ukraine is a very corrupt uh, country, has been. It's very doubtful that any of this money that's targeted for ordinary Ukrainians will actually end up in the pockets of ordinary Ukrainians. It'll end up in the pockets of, of weapon manufacturers and oligarchs in Ukraine and, and also organized crime. And so the money is being sent to Ukraine. Uh, money that, of course, could be used here to address um, uh, the baby formula uh, situation or uh, we didn't get billed back better uh, passed because of, um, uh, well, because of two Democrats. Uh, you, could, you could put the focus on Manchin and Cinema, but it's, it's because the, um, the, the donors to the Democratic Party didn't want it to pass. Uh, and so we are, we are always ready to increase the military budget or buy things for the military. We're never... Um, uh, uh, we, are, we are never in, in, in a mood to to do social uh, investment, and so and so the question is is to be asked if we could do forty billion for for Ukraine, can we can we do forty billion for for child check, child tax credit, which has has expired? Yeah, and I'm also just wondering, Doctor Tawhid, you know, given what we've discussed here, and you were pointing out um, a moment ago. Um, how uh, the the Fed's response to all of this uh, likely won't really serve as much of a solution. I mean, what do you think really has to be done to turn things around economically here uh, uh, in the U.S. as, you know, uh, uh, the pandemic and so many other things that continue to just uh, pummel the, the economy, which, of course, you know, impacts people's material conditions? Well, well, what what needed to have been done was to have passed uh, the uh, the Build Back Better, the social infrastructure bill that, of course, I mentioned was blocked by Manchin and Senator two Democrats, um, and uh, that would have increased the supply. And and uh, Janet Yellen, for example, uh, let us know that she understands that because uh, last year when she was testifying in, in Congress while the Build Back Better plan was being being um, uh, put up for for, for vote. Uh, she was asked about inflation. Inflation is not just just sprung up. We've had inflation for a year, a high inflation for a year. And she, her response was that Build Back Better would actually decrease inflation because it will increase productivity. It'll it'll uh, create uh, jobs uh, that are uh, supposedly good paying jobs. We would have, would have seen that that would have, would have happened, but it certainly would have created jobs. It would have uh, created um, um, uh, a child, increased child care and increased other kinds of social spending that the poor and middle class need. And uh, that increase in production would have, would have one, uh, held off recession. It would have increased uh, GDP, but would also have, have reduced inflation. And so we need, what we need is what we call a, an industrial policy. Uh, the U.S. needs a policy by which it uh, can, can put people to work. Uh, um, uh, earning earning good money, earning livable wages instead of instead of uh, you know minimum um, wages, and and that's what needs to be done. Now the federal Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank can't do that. That is what the federal government, the Treasury, does. Uh, we call that fiscal policy. Uh, what the Fed does is monetary policy. Monetary policy will not work in this instance. Uh, we need to spend more money. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has announced that it's actually going to start decreasing uh, uh, the deficit spending in order to try to get, um, you know, bring down the debt, which is also exactly the opposite of what needs to be done. 
and you know, Yellen actually uh, raised the issue uh, of sanctions on Russia um, contributing to the global impact of uh, this US-EU proxy war, NATO proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. So how would Yellen or will she be able to influence some kind of change in U.S. policy toward Russia to mitigate the global impact of this war on, uh, you know, food uh, shortages, energy prices and, and that kind of thing? Yes, when, when when Yellen made that statement about the uh, the impact of sanctions, she she hadn't quite gotten the memo because uh, President Biden was saying that it was uh, Putin was was the cause of inflation. Uh, by her saying it was the sanctions that was the cause of inflation and disruption, uh, you know that was, she was kind of off script, but she was correct that it is these sanctions and uh, the, the European Union countries in Europe are going to be uh, the first and, and probably nationally the worst affected um, of, of the developed countries in this as they, um, um, uh, as they have to pay more for gas and oil. We'll, we'll see uh, inflation. We already have 10% inflation in, in the UK. Uh, that's, that's going to increase. There are um, uh, upwards of 20% inflation in some, in some, in some European countries already. And so now the question the question is are the are the leaders of European countries going to realize that uh, they are hurting their own citizens and and uh, uh, try to get out of this sanctioning regime being led by the U.S. Are they going to continue to to follow the U.S. and hurt their own citizens? Uh, so so we'll see how that how that plays out. But we also, of course, have have uh, drastic effects on on developing countries, uh, countries in Africa, uh, South America, and and uh, Southern Asia. Um, but those countries, those countries are dealing with with uh, their their um, uh, economic issues uh, as a result of the sanctions by by going into direct trade with Russia and China. Uh, which is which is uh, breaking the sanctions at least for eighty percent of the world, and uh, and they have to respond that way because they have to make sure that they don't have famine and and other kinds of disruption in their countries. So the question is, are the Europeans going to stick to it? The rest of the world is not is not going is not sticking or or agreeing with these sanctions, and so we are definitely ending up. In a, in a multipolar world where you have the U.S. and Europe on one side and the rest of the world, the 80 percent of the world's population seems to be on the other side. Definitely. But we thank you so much, Dr. Tawheed, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about 
developments inside Somalia. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Samar Al-Bulushi, a political anthropologist at UC Irvine and contributing editor at Africa is a Country. Dr. Al-Bulushi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. And Doctor, uh, recently the New York Times reported that the U.S. Africa Command, or AFRICOM, will be redeploying troops to Somalia, and also that the Biden administration has approved uh, a request from the Pentagon for discretionary authority for conducting drone strikes inside Somalia. And uh, I feel like there are a number of things that are at play here. I mean, number one, I think this sort of contradicts uh, Joe Biden's promise to, you know, end the forever wars and things like this. And I think it also raises some broader questions about uh, Washington's ongoing interest in the Horn of Africa. But I'm just sort of curious how all of this is striking you, Dr. Al-Balushi, seeing how uh, the U.S. government is sort of positioning itself towards Somalia at this point. Absolutely. So I think perhaps it makes the most sense to start with uh, the question of how we got here. And that really requires going at least as far back as uh, late 2006, when the U.S. made the decision to support an Ethiopian-backed military invasion of Somalia. It was in the early 2000s, around the time of 9-11, that the Bush administration had its eyes on Somalia and was concerned about developments there, but knew very clearly uh, in the wake of the embarrassing exit of U.S. troops in the 1990s from Somalia that it couldn't deploy U.S. troops to the ground. It It didn't want to put U.S. troops in a similar position that they had been in in the 1990s. And so the solution to that would be to rely on proxies. And so when the Ethiopians invaded in 2006, they dislodged the first uh, stable government that Somalia had had in many years. And the outcome was the emergence of the rise of uh, more militant factions that uh, eventually turned into what we now know of as al-Shabaab. So ever since that day and ever since that year of 2006, we've seen essentially mounting instability in that country. And it's on the basis of mounting instability that the U.S. has been able to legitimate uh, sustained involvement in the country. Now, if we jump to the current day and this decision of President Biden, you're absolutely right that uh, the decision to redeploy troops contradicts uh, his promise to end forever wars. And um, if we really kind of take the time to unpack what the circumstances are here, it becomes clear, as you have said, that the U.S. is ultimately prioritizing its own geostrategic interests in the region. And I'd be happy to talk more about that. Yes, I absolutely would love for you to talk more about that because, you know, the administration of Joe Biden isn't already isn't uh, just uh, a part of, uh, you know, continuing the uh, U.S. involvement in the region. But we, we could go back to Barack Obama uh, in 2009, authorizing uh, drone strikes uh, in Somalia as a part of uh, the special operations forces that he deployed in the country. So, yes, Please explain what are the uh, geostrategic uh, reasons that the U.S. under several administrations continue to destabilize uh, Somalia? 
Right. So I think I'm glad you brought up Obama because that serves as an important reminder that Democrat or Republican consistently we've seen the U.S., uh, you know, essentially committed to military intervention uh, in the name of, quote unquote, security. But we have to kind of do some poking around behind the scenes to determine what the actual interests are. Now, the first uh, thing to highlight would be the geostrategic location of Somalia on the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. Uh, it's, you know, the significance of the ports in the region and the significance of the growing military presence of a whole range of other powers, primarily to the north of Somalia in Djibouti, where the U.S. has its largest military base uh, on the on the continent. Now. Uh, shifting away from this geostrategic location, then we have the question of, of resources and of oil in the region that the U.S. is interested in. And finally, um, we have to think about the business of war itself, right? And it's here that we can begin to make sense of why the U.S. is so committed to maintaining troops in the region. There's uh, just been millions and millions of dollars spent in the name of quote-unquote training for U.S. partners, and we have to ask where the money uh, is going, right? And I think we can pose that question in relation to U.S. aid in general, where the, where the money is going, but certainly when it comes to trainings, the significance of private security contractors that have been on the receiving end of, you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, from U.S. budgets uh, that go into the pockets of private security. and. When you, when you really start to take time to unpack the uh, range of actors that are present on the ground, it becomes much harder to clearly delineate between a clearly defined enemy in the form of al-Shabaab and then a clearly defined set of U.S. partners that supposedly stand you know, at vast distance from al-Shabaab because the reality on the ground is so messy the U.S. has trained so many different actors that there are so many different interests at play uh, that make it hard to to draw clear binaries. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, uh, Dr. Al Belushi, because uh, Somalia recently elected uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed uh, as uh, the uh, next president of the country. And so with all this happening, I'm just wondering if you think the, if the internal political situation in Somalia will have some impact in terms of uh, the country's relationship with Washington. Uh, with the with the election of this new president, I think that, uh, you know, in the short of it, very little is likely to change. By and large, every successive uh, leader that has been elected in Somalia since the overthrow of the government in 2006 has been in some shape or form in the pockets of the U.S. Uh, and uh, to a lesser extent, the European Union, which has been spending a huge amount of money on the country as well. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, when you when you look at the kind of day to day realities on the ground, the messiness of the different kinds of alliances ensures that it's really just a select group of people at the top within the presidency uh, and the president's circles that can enjoy some semblance of security. And the majority of Somalis themselves are at the whims of uh, the leadership as well as at the whims of al-Shabaab, right? And so I think the population as a whole is caught uh, in what can best be described as a business of war, 
where very, very few um, members of, you know, this kind of group of people have any interest in actual peace. Yeah, and you speak to that uh, in your piece where you talk about how in this country, uh, few people question the decision to wage war. Like there is no outrage uh, except for in uh, these anti-imperialist circles where we reside about Biden backtracking on Trump's policy and redeploying troops to Somalia. But th there's also no concern about what war does in countries like Somalia. Like, we're not talking about the way uh, the destabilization of U.S. policy continues to contribute to the very uh, so-called extremist forces uh, that the U.S. continues to claim they're deploying uh, troops or they're sending drone bombs to deal with. So I'm wondering if you could help people ex uh, understand how you know, this constant decision to remain mired in Somalia and to continue these military operations, whether they're boots on the ground or drone strikes from the air, really do contribute to uh, the the persistent uh, and, and the persistence of these uh, extremist forces that cause absolute misery for people's lives every day on the ground in Somalia. Absolutely. So to your first point about uh, the American public in general failing to question war itself, uh, I think that's incredibly important to spend some time reflecting on to ask how we got to a place where war has become so normalized, right, uh, for the American public. And secondly, if and when we do talk about war, the primary people who are shaping the conversation and shaping the debate are the kind of human rights um, activists who are, um, one, yes, they are paying attention to the dynamics on the ground to a degree that we might say uh, exceeds the average you know, American public, and, and that attention to the specificity on the ground is important. But what the human rights activists do is focus on the question of legality rather than the question of war itself. And, and that is a fundamentally a political question, right? So um, if we turn to this uh, one element of Biden's announcement this week, and that is that he's going to maintain this flexible approach to drone warfare, what we learn when we look at the details is that um, He's essentially giving AFRICOM the green light to make the decision itself when to launch a drone strike. It will not need to get permission from the White House, right? And so that was something that was enacted by Trump. But then we're told that the, the Trump administration has gone to great lengths to enact a new policy to ensure that uh, these drone strikes are supposedly going to be more humane because they're supposedly going to take into account the potential for civilians to be get to get caught in harm's way. And they've added the dimension of young men to uh, women and children as people, as civilians who are deserving of uh, attention and special protection. And so we, as the American public, are supposed to think, oh, wow, Biden has you know, gone to great lengths to to create these, this more kind of thoughtful, civilian-centered uh, approach to warfare. And in doing so, we get distracted from the bigger question of war itself and what the United States has been doing for 15 years 
in Somalia. And as you say, you know, the effects of this war are rarely, if ever, uh, taken into consideration. And I think another important dimension to this is that we, even amongst ourselves as critically minded folks who like to follow these developments on the ground, we too only tend to pay attention when something big happens, like a drone strike, right? And I think the other element that's incumbent upon us is to to pay attention to the more everyday dimensions of this warfare, including uh, police violence, right? And so what the U.S. is doing when they say very clearly, we're not deploying U.S. troops to active combat, um, we're just there to train. Well, what are the effects of those trainings, right? And we may be told, and officially on paper, the Somali police and the Somali military and the African Union troops who are there may be getting training in human rights on one day, but they'll be getting training in counterinsurgency tactics the next day. And so it's those dimensions of everyday forms of repression that Somalis are now subject to. And it's not just Somalis. This is happening all across the African continent, thanks to AFRICOM, where they're investing in uh, empowering the police uh, uh, in each of these countries. It's those everyday dimensions that we need to attend to as well. Definitely. In our last couple of minutes, uh, Doctor, I was hoping you could touch on how, you know, with the U.S. and the West and their military presence um, on the African continent often, um, you know, being justified around concerns of terrorism, when I feel like a lot of times it's the policies of a lot of these governments that sort of uh, facilitate an impact, I think, in ways directly and indirectly, the growth of these uh, kinds of groups. And so, I mean, how do you see, uh, uh, for instance, the policy of the U.S. Um, impacting the issue of terrorist groups, you know, in the Horn and elsewhere on the continent? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we could take a historical look at that, but we could also take a, a present day look at that question. And um, really, when it comes down to it, it's it's the policies of the U.S. and the international financial institutions that um, disregard the significance of economic justice, um, well-being, um, you know, just the ability of people to feed themselves, the ability of people to get an education, to get a good job, uh, that all of which is overlooked. And instead, we have a prioritization of military solutions um, to everything effectively. And so if we take the present uh, situation of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the shutdown of global supply chains and the concomitant uh, food shortages, the... Um, inability of states to access fertilizer. Many of them get their fertilizer from Russia. Uh, we're going to see a long-term um, effect on very, very the very, very basic needs of uh, the majority of the African population, right? And the question of how the U.S. chooses to respond to this, uh, to this dilemma in terms of the kinds of aid that it could be providing to African states, in terms of the kinds of openings that African states could be seizing upon themselves in order to be able to ensure that their people don't go hungry. Um, it's here that we could then scrutinize the terms and conditions of potential food aid that may or may not be distributed to African states. Will the U.S. say, we'll only give you food aid if you agree to go along with our policy on Russia, for example, uh, or we'll only give you food aid if you agree to sign on to this latest IMF loan, uh, which will further indebt the country and make it even harder to actually feed their population? 
versus will the U.S. prioritize long-term solutions, uh, cancel debt, and enable African states to negotiate with their various geopolitical partners around the world in order to obtain the goods and services that they need. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Al Belushi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate? Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And Nate, uh, Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, has said that uh, the ban on Russian athletes is not an attempt to punish them, but is actually out of an attempt to protect them. And uh, Bach said this during uh, an online meeting of IOC members. He said, quote, let me emphasize again that these are protective measures, not sanctions, measures to protect the integrity of competitions. The safety of the Russian and Belarusian athletes and officials could not be guaranteed because of the deep anti-Russian and anti-Belarusian feelings in so many countries following the invasion. And, you know, we've seen um, these sorts of measures uh, against Russian and also Belarusian athletes in uh, a number of ways, Nate. But, I mean, what Bach is saying here just seems pretty uh, uh, ridiculous, honestly. I mean, it just feels like it's part and parcel of how sports has been uh, uh, weaponized in this whole uh, Ukraine war issue. But uh, how are you seeing this? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, no pun intended to, you know, Miguel Garcia sports as a weapon, but this is a classic example of just that. And, you know, this is, uh, this is unreal because it's like, it's saying that the safety of Russian and Belarusian athletes cannot be guaranteed because of the deep anti-Russian and anti-Belarusian feelings in so many countries following the invasion. Well, where do those feelings come from? And like, and what kind of structure do those feelings form from? I mean, what kind of, uh, you know, media is doing a job and what kind of, uh, you know, academic institutions are like doing a job of actually providing context regarding what this Ukrainian government actually has been since 2014, a government that's like banned the Russian language, a government that is, uh, you know, is, that has built you know, statues for Stefan Bandera, streets named after Stefan Bandera. Um, has, I mean, whatever you want to say, if it's 2%, 3%, whatever the percentage of, of Azov Battalion guys in right sector that are actually, and, and others too, that are actually incorporated into the armed forces of Ukraine, that it would be insane. It'd be like, uh, you know, we all know that there's white supremacist, you know, elements in the U.S. military, of course, but like to have an officially sanctioned, um, you know, KKK battalion, you know, and have them go, you know, down to the Mexico border or something and just say, well, they're just a small portion of the military. I mean, that would just be, just, <laughs> it just I mean, it just speaks for itself. But 
to actually have that incorporated into their government. How many Americans know about these realities, right? Uh, they, how many Americans know about what's been going on in Donbass and the, and, the, and the number of you know people that have been killed there in the last eight years um, that were under this Maidan regime? Um, the, the banning of all socialist political parties, opposition media, the the uh, the deal with the EU, which I mean was you know which Yanukovych was overthrown by, which literally would have privatized most all their state assets, and then stuff already been happening under Zelensky. I mean, so you have uh, you know the, the the privatization of state you know state state assets. You have uh, you know all sorts of corruption um, coming from Zelensky, and none of that is brought into the equation. It's purely just it's unprovoked. Russia just put all these troops on the border and invaded on February 24th. Therefore, uh, and then all, we are just all this spontaneous, natural, just reaction of just this just you know, unexplainable, incomprehensible Russian evil that happened. And, and therefore, we're having this, we've created this psychosis uh, sort of in terms of debate where you can't really debate the, the, these, these topics because it's considered, just look at Twitter, right? Like abuse or hate speech, right? I mean, it's like they, they, they almost they cheapen what hate speech means in a lot of ways and whatnot by, by constantly calling any kind of critical discourse on this topic abusive language or, you know, attacks or whatever. Um, so that's the context we're in that leads to Bach making these remarkable statements that totally leave out. I mean, let's look at all, just go down the line, Yugoslavia, bombing of Kosovo, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, um, all the stuff the British Empire's done, the, you know, France has done. Um, you know, you can just run down the line of, like, you know, Western powers. And none of that's ever led to the International Olympic Committee saying we have to ban, you know, French athletes or British athletes or U.S. athletes um, because their own safety, like this, like patronizing concern, uh, paternalistic concern. He cares so much about these Russian and Belarusian safety. But that's it's just I, I have to kind of provide all that context just to sort of like really highlight the insanity and the absurdity of what they're saying. They, they're, they're saying they can't provide their safety essentially because the propaganda is so on full speed steroids that there's such a climate of Russophobia. It's just like endemic that this has to be done for their safety. And uh, that's also bogus too. You look at the kind of security detail and the kind of security capabilities they have at a place like Wimbledon. Um, it really gets down to the fear that Neil you know, Medvedev could win and have to embarrass Pete Middleton or someone like there, the British royal family, potentially handing him the trophy. Uh, that's where we are. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you ended on that, because really, when we talk about, you know, Wimbledon uh, making this decision to ban these uh, Russian and Belarusian athletes, it really does ca- come down to that part of the political equation. Not It's really, really not about anything that they claim Russia's done. It really is that they don't want to have a situation where Kate Middleton may have to award uh, the a Russian uh, tennis player, specifically uh, uh, Medvedev, who is, the, I think he's the number one or number two in the world, the trophy. And, and that's insane to me because... All throughout the eight years that the neo-Nazi full Azov battalion has been targeting and bombing and shelling ethnic Russians in the Donbass and Lugansk regions, how many 
Wimbledon championships were there? How many times did anyone on uh, the Wimbledon, uh, 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 you know, committee or uh, any of these athletic committees show any concern for Russian athletes, Belarusian athletes during that entire time? But now, Nate, this really is all about we don't want to put a poor Kate Middleton in a position where she may have to hand a trophy to a Russian. And I think that's really quite despicable. Right. You know, you think of all the, the terrible injustices in, in the world and whatnot, you know, I really, I can't think of any more pronounced than, than the potential plight of Kate Middleton having to like, you know, <laughs> hand Vladimir Putin that, uh, that PR to, you know, it's, it's really, it's really difficult to really even reflect on, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, I, what else can you say? I mean, it's, Totally, totally. And shifting gears uh, a a little bit here, Nate, to talk some uh, college football, Uh, Nick Saban uh, recently made some comments about uh, schools uh, such as Texas A&M University and Jackson State University, accusing them of basically buying their players, saying, quote, Jackson State paid a guy a million dollars last year. And, you know, he's received some uh, criticism and pushback from this, both from Texas A&M coach Jimbo Fisher and uh, also Deion Sanders, uh, the coach of Jackson State University. And uh, uh, USA Today quoted Sanders uh responding to this saying, quote, I don't even wear a watch and I know what time it is. They forget I know who's been bringing the bag and dropping it off. I know this stuff. I'm not the one you want to play with when it comes to all of this stuff. I don't make a million. Travis ain't built like that. Travis ain't chasing a dollar. Travis is chasing greatness. Travis and his family don't get down like that. They never came to us in search of the bag. They're not built like that. This kid wants to be great. And so, you know, uh, uh, Nick Saban sort of <laughs> taking his licks in a way here for uh, uh, sort of coming off half cocked. But just sort of curious your thoughts on this whole exchange, Nate. Yeah, there's a few things that have to be kind of pointed out. First of all, but going back to the Supreme Court decision last summer, they did they name image and likeness legal, and finally, you know, as it was long overdue, um, athletes could could make money off of their you know their name image and likeness. Now, the thing with this is there's a stipulation with NCAA that you're allowed to do this, but it can't be like engineered by the school. Like it can't be as part of a recruiting enticement package where. And this is where it just gets to where, like, how, I mean, how do you enforce this stuff? I mean, you're, you know, who, who's officially with the school? You can use liaisons. Um, you know, you're allowed to have an you know, agent. You know, you're allowed to have business representatives now. Um, you're allowed to go out and, like, you know, uh, you know, work out deals, try to figure out you know, what's out there. But that's once you're, you've signed somewhere to go somewhere. You could even do it before, but it can't be part of, like, the recruiting process. So what's alleged with Travis Hunter the longtime Florida State commitment from the state of Georgia who flipped. Um, it was ranked number one or number two player in the country, depending on which rankings you look at last year, um, and really bonded with Deion Sanders and flipped and went to Jackson State. But also, heroin is a big move, too. It's like you know, the largest, most high-profile athlete to defect from a PWI to go to an HBCU. Um, there, were, there were claims against Deion that, he was not looking out for the best interest of Travis Hunter because he'll be playing at a competition level that, you know, went below his capabilities. And, that, you know, so there's just all these different, like, kind of things that be going on. But the thing, main allegation is that there was a million-dollar deal with Barstool Sports. Um, they, you know, kind of since Deion Sanders has a relationship with Barstool Sports, 
that that was um, part of the, the you know enticement was to get Travis Hunter that deal too as part of the, the package to sign at Jackson State. Now, how Saban, you know, the proof of that, what we, you know, show documents if you want, you know, Nick, but the reality is like, even if that is, that is true, who's to say that Travis Hunter, then it just engineered himself. Like, then it just, you know, have an agent or business representative do it. I mean, it's highly doubtful. They want to be at least mentioned by, by, you know, Dion whispering in his ear or something, but who cares? I mean, secondly, I mean, if you can't, this is, uh, the, the amount of obscene money that's floating around and we're sitting here talking about, you know, sour grapes like that. And I mean, in fairness, I will say this was like technically off the record. Um, you know, he wasn't like, you know, making a public statement. This was reported out what he said at a, at a private gathering, but that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. He said what he said, so he must have meant it. And uh, sometimes, you know, um, when your words get out there, you know, it's, it's for the better, you know, because now we can, you know, parse through and really see the, hypocrisy and, and everything that goes with it. I mean, the same with Jimbo Fisher, a lot of that goes back to their former working relationship. I've read about, you know, when he was offensive coordinator for Nick Saban at LSU from like 2000, 2004, they, you know, sparred a lot, you know, Nick Saban really, you know, thought Jimbo was brilliant, but Jimbo felt handcuffed by Saban and, and kind of felt that he was overly micromanaged and, uh, you know, so there's there's a history there. It's not like there's, uh, you know, so I think there's some hurt feelings. In a lot of ways, they come off looking like 12-year-old kids, like arguing um, in, in this back and forth, and it, it looks pretty bad. I mean, because the Texas A&M thing, I will say, I mean, it's just like, I mean, they do, I mean, whatever you want to call it, and I have no issue with guys getting paid, but they have a, an actual collective of, like, their boosters that pulls together money, and A&M is... Uh, I'm not sure if it's Texas or Texas A&M, but those are the wealthiest schools in the country, all the oil money and the boosters. And they have really gone all in on, on name, image, and likeness and making sure that deals are ready-made for the players they're going to sign. And the reason I think Saban, a lot of people believe he really made these comments is he's, for the first time, been eclipsed in recruiting rankings. Uh, well, maybe not the first time. I think Georgia's you know, maybe got a higher ranking before them, but you know, in a way that Texas A&M did this year with something like eight five-star players coming in, uh, that he hasn't felt that before. And uh, so there's there, there's some bad blood, but there's it's a complicated thing. Let's not forget Deion Sanders and Nick Saban do Aflac commercials together too. So we'll see if they're going to be chirping it up with the duck anytime soon now. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to ask the question that I'm sure is on a lot of folks' minds. Nate, how much of this do you really think is about a multi-million dollar paid white college football coach being mad, big mad, really mad about some probably mostly poor black kids uh, who are able to demand now, some kind of compensa- compensation, maybe not as much as, as Saban is, is making for sure, not as much as he's paid, but now they're able to demand compensation for their talent if their talent is in, uh, in demand, whereas before... Uh, NIL was was in play, you know, it was basically the coach making a bunch of promises to players that they had to just trust that he would uh, follow through on in, in far, insofar as, quote-unquote, taking care of the players while right. they provided their talent for 
practically not a lot of anything. How, how much of this is really just a, a rich white guy mad that he doesn't have as much power over somebody else's talent as he used to? Yeah, I think I think it's like I, I would say it, the what probably makes Saban mad is not so much that guys can make some money now. I don't think he's necessarily opposed to like them being able to be compensated somehow, but it's the control. It's the control and like the losing or the loss of control that comes with, you know, you know, what do they call it? FU money, right? You people that get a certain level level of wealthy, right? You can basically like advise you to sort of license to like not have to put up with, you know, other people's BS and that sort that sort of thing. And once players, you know, whether it's fifty thousand dollars, a million Whatever it is, whatever it happens to be, nil deal. Let's not forget before nil, it would be the bag man. They always talked about, you know, if someone was, they wouldn't be all recruits, but the ones they really wanted, there'd be sort of you meet it in a, you know, an undisclosed location, burner phone, and there'd be a, a duffel bag, and and you know the cash gets gets exchanged, right? And the, you know the, the assumption being you sign on the dotted line for the right school. Now it's becoming above ground. You're starting to like have player empowerment. And player empowerment also in the transfer portal. You don't have a penalty anymore where players have to sit out a year if they transfer. Therefore, someone like Saban has to be mindful that if he's going to not play a kid as a freshman or if he's going to, like, you know, kind of have some long term plan where he wants to kind of, like, you know, strategically really ride them hard their first year, you know, to kind of, you know, break them in to, to, uh, to you know, break them, put, put, break them down to build them back up. They, that's not going to work anymore. They can go in the transfer portal and they can play immediately. Um, you know, so it's the loss of control and uh, it's the loss of like, you know, feeling like it So with their empowerment means that they're not as dependent on the head coach for, you know, being for all their needs kind of, you know, and there is some, there's a huge amount of power that comes from when you have a four player, a player from, from poverty, who is a really good player, but, you know, comes in and, tells you a sob story about, you know, the, the mom not being able to pay the light bill and, and struggling and the coach being able to, oh, let me get you in touch with someone. I, I can help you out, you know? And because it's not so much the coach feels good about helping them out is that he feels good that he's in that position of power to be able to do that. And, uh, and, and that reproduces a certain dynamic, social dynamic, relationship dynamic, which reinforces his understanding of how the hierarchical power structure should work. And, uh, so I think it has a lot to do with that. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, as always, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Simply stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, May 20th, 2022. 
And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows on SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, M-A-V-E dot digital and you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time each weekday and we are streaming for your viewing pleasure right now on rumble rumble.com slash c slash b a m necessary the chat is live and remember friends at 3 20 p.m eastern today you can call us at 202-521-1320 that's 202-521-1320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we want to hear from you we most certainly do we most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by rachel hugh co-host of the covert action bulletin podcast. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean and Jackie. Absolutely. And Rachel, this week, lawmakers in Oklahoma actually passed a bill that would ban abortions from the moment of, quote, fertilization. And uh, in doing so would uh, basically prohibit just about all abortions in the state of Oklahoma and uh, making it the uh, strictest prohibition on abortions in the country if it is signed into law by Republican Governor Kevin Stitt, who has said that he wants the state of Oklahoma to be, quote, the most pro-life state in the country. Now, uh, under this bill, uh, people basically uh, could be sued, including anyone who, quote, performs or induces an abortion or anyone who, quote, knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion and things like this. And this would include uh, paying for an abortion procedure and all these sorts of things. And I noted earlier that um, it would ban abortion from the moment of fertilization, which they define as the moment the sperm meets the egg, uh, literally. And I mean, obviously, Rachel, um, this is happening in the context of, I mean, a long running uh, uh, attack on women's rights, on abortion rights, uh, not just in recent years, but in uh, uh, over the, the, the decades and uh, over the last couple of weeks, you know, since the draft leak opinion of the Supreme Court that um, uh, sort of suggested that they may overturn Roe v. Wade and uh, uh, the sort of failure of the Democrats uh, or how the U.S. Senate voted down the Women's Health Protection Act, which, you know, would have codified all of these rights. And then, of course, after the release of that leak, we saw this uh, massive 
a movement that sprung up in the streets. I mean, just thousands and thousands of people uh, showed up in demonstrations over the last couple of weeks here in the United States. And so, you know, just seeing about how this uh, attack on women's rights is obviously ongoing, Rachel. And I should probably note that, you know, a lot of these uh, sort of stringent uh, anti-abortion bills have been passing uh, across the country here uh, recently. But just sort of wondering your uh, uh, analysis of the whole issue uh, at this point, as we see how uh, the political mainstream is orienting to it and how you see the movement uh, should be acting in response. Certainly, Sean. I mean, I think to to note, too, I want to put this out here because it's been very much so on my mind. And I think it's really important to pay attention to all the different types of trigger laws that are being put in place. And even though it was withdrawn in Louisiana, there was a bill put forward to essentially make, in essence, having, I, I guess, miscarriage. I'll just say that it makes miscarriage literally uh, a crime where you could be charged with manslaughter for essentially having a miscarriage or whatever they would like to call attempted abortion, et cetera, et cetera, harming an unborn child, all of these things. And these laws are able to be, I mean, it was withdrawn because of public pressure, but nonetheless, these types of laws we're going to see continuously coming as we get closer to the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which I also want to say in my first analysis that's most important to put out here is that while there's this kind of mindset right now, I feel, amongst people in the movement and amongst people that are, are conscious people, you know, people listening to the show, people who have been very much so for many, many years in support of women's rights and support of reproductive rights, who have this kind of mindset of waiting. I have no other way to put it, that there's this kind of idea that, that we're going to go home and we're going to wait until the really horrible news comes out of the Supreme Court. And I think that that, to me, is both something that's easy to very much so fall into. I, I definitely think that at points too, just waiting and watching and seeing how bad things are getting. But I also want to say that, you know, we have the power right now or people on the ground have the power right now to come into the streets in the millions, not in just the hundreds of thousands, not just what we've seen, but a mass mobilization of women and everybody across the country who cares about reproductive rights. That is something that could be done and could potentially dramatically change the situation situation that's in front of us. This is unprecedented to get a leak from the Supreme Court. And my theory is that it's it's absolutely a court clerk who, you know, the court clerks often for the Supreme Court are people who are chosen by, they're just kind of went to school. They're, they're recently out of school. They're best in their class. They're top of their class. And so it's kind of an interesting thought I have in my mind of who leaked this information. But, you know, somebody took a great risk to really leak this information because they wanted people to know. They wanted people to know what is coming down the pipeline in so many ways so we can act, not so that we, we can fall into this way that the mainstream media is talking about this as if it's a done deal. It's actually not a done deal. We have so much time to mobilize, to make sure that we're putting endless and relentless pressure to make sure that we don't see Roe v. Wade overturned. I mean, there's so many other things that I feel, especially the failure of the Democratic Party to, 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 to be able to pass the Women Health Protection Act. I mean, there's no excuse for that. There's literally no excuse for that. They're able to unilaterally send you know millions of dollars for weaponry in Ukraine, but like actually billions of dollars of weaponry in Ukraine, but they're not able to, to make simple 
it's just a simple show uh, of unity up on their program that this is supposedly the main part of the Democratic Party party's platform. I mean, it's just it's so infuriating. I'm getting tripped up on my words by just how angry I am at this situation and how profoundly the Democrats have failed us. But to that point, I do say that we have to continue to mobilize. We have to continue to organize. And these laws, the ones that could make it, it, it manslaughter to either attempt an abortion, to get an abortion, to provide an abortion, or to be somebody who has ultimately a miscarriage, this is like dystopian in terms of the level of control that we will see over women's bodies. I mean, there are other countries in the world where this is the situation that if you are seen to endanger the life of a fetus or whatever that's supposed to mean, I guess the life of a, a, I, I don't consider a fetus a life in that same way at all. But I mean, the point is, is that there are women who are behind bars right now because of these crimes. And it's, it's just very serious, all the things that could happen. So many different directions to go, Sean. But I just think we cannot wait. We cannot sit around and we cannot pretend this is a done deal because it's not. You know, Rachel, what you said raised a couple of issues that are actually questions for me in my mind, because I, I absolutely agree with, with everything you said, particularly about your anger toward the Democratic Party. And I think of the people who are organized and have taken to the streets, I think we've been hearing and feeling that anger toward the Democratic Party among our organizing circles and people who are organized and activated already. But I think my question, Rachel, Rachel, is what about all of the millions of people, particularly in states like Oklahoma, in these states where these bills are being passed, who are not organized? Like, I, I get the sense, and I think I've always had this feeling that, by and large, most people in this country don't know what to do when they they see something that their you know governor is doing that their school board is doing that you know the county tax assessor is doing that they disagree with and and most people really just literally don't know what to do they're not organized and i wonder how do we overcome that hurdle because i think that aside from um, from being afraid and i think this is also a very real thing aside from being afraid of running afoul of their family members and their friends in standing up for a woman's uh reproductive uh rights which i think is a very real fear especially in some parts of this country i think people really don't know who to who to connect with where to go how how to get mobilized how to get connected and and i'm wondering what you say to people who are experiencing that that are in these small towns in oklahoma you know who don't know who to reach out to to get involved to let their voice be heard you know what i mean no, for certain, Jackie. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. I mean, I want to say this, too. I mean, 78 percent of Texas voters actually think that abortion should be allowed in some capacity. And so you're so right. There's so much anger, especially in the places that are already under attack, that are already having these kinds of measures in place at the moment and will be hit hardest once these trigger laws come into place. And so I think that it's really important to, to, to recognize that it's not that people in these, these states don't care 
care. It's not that working class people are not horrified by what's happening in Texas. You know, the people that live in Texas are horrified by what's happening in their own state. It's that they are have been systemically disempowered from a very long process of combination of gerrymandering and overall just attacks, relentless attacks, both on women, on LGBTQ people, and on the working class as a whole, on workers' rights. I mean, we really have to think about it, especially in the South, that working class people have been under uh, just a, a, a incredible magnitude of pressure, completely dismantling any sense of, of power that they have. But I want to say that to say that what you're talking about is important. Where do you go? How do you get involved? I know I'm part of an organization called the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and, and that's certainly how I get involved. And we're a national organization. But I agree, when you're in a place where there isn't an organization near you, where there isn't a very clear line of what do I do? How do I get involved? I mean, my advice and my perspective is find your friends. Start small. Find the people you know in your town that agree with you. They can be your neighbors up the street, even if you're five miles apart from each other. What matters is starting to talk with other people that are near you and taking action big or small. Even a small action of 10 people in a small town in front of your, your governmental buildings, it means so much. Because, of course, you know, we shouldn't wait. We shouldn't wait for somebody else to make the call. Right now, you know, many of these mainstream women's organizations, you know, they're very focused on, on just doing everything that they can to, to, to manage the reality of what it's going to mean for them just financially to be able to help people still access abortion when they're not going to be able to access abortion. They're, they're reeling, essentially, from the reality of these attacks. You know, the, the reality is that, that, that organizations are both working to defend themselves and defend their ability to provide services, and at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, it's not enough to just wait around for another organization to make the call. We don't need to necessarily look for others. We can just implement ourselves where we are, what we can do. And I think that begins the conversation. When you have you and 10 other people and your small town coming together, and then you talk more and get connected online and even find other people that are in the Capitol and make you know make moves to go to the Capitol. I mean, my, my point is just really that we don't have to wait on anybody. We can generate all that we need to generate now with us and even a group of five friends. And I think that that's such an important part. And the same thing goes for making our own media. You can make a video like that on TikTok and you can put it out there and you can see what happens. You know, there's no guarantee it's going to go anywhere, but it might. And I think that it's really important to not give up under any circumstances. And I think that to me, you know, when we're talking about this ongoing kind of this this endless push we've seen from the right, I think it, it's so important to understand that we are not powerless in the face of that. They can take away systemically our ability to, to, to vote, our ability to, to be able to to make those kinds of, of impacts on the system, but they don't take away where the power really lies. And that's in the grassroots and that's within us and our willingness to stand up. And so I think that that is kind of my first answer to that. And I, I also want to bring in this too, and I'm curious what you both think about this, but I've been really thinking a lot in this conversation around abortion on just the other element of this, which is where did it all come from? And really where's the funding? Where is all of this happening? And I think I want to bring this forward because 
because it's been so important to me that I've seen a lot more conversation around this recently. And this is the kind of thing you could even do in your home where you're on Twitter. You can just at, you know, be part of different Twitter campaigns or part of different social media campaigns to put pressure on these companies. But there are many companies in this country that actively fund all of this anti-abortion legislation. I mean, AT&T, you literally NBC, Comcast, they're funding, they're literally NBC Universal slash Comcast. They donated actually $58,000 or so to the sponsors of SB8 in Texas. I mean, there's, it's crazy to me to start seeing just how companies like CVS and other companies as well, you know, it's just, it's just really mind boggling to me how much these companies have, have put their money and put their lot into funding this. And so it's just important to bring those elements forward as well, that this is an issue that didn't just crop up because people in your state, your neighbors believed in this. Like, it's not that your neighbors believed in this. It's that there are a lot of forces and powers that be that have been working for a very, very long time to implement these kinds of policies. And there are a lot of politicians that get paid a lot of money to be able to push these policies forward. And so I think it's so important that we recognize these policies are not even mandated from the people in these states. Just because it's a red state doesn't mean the people in those communities necessarily agree with what's happening. And so I just want to draw that out because I do think it's important. There isn't a mandate. So if there isn't a mandate, the people have to act. Yeah. And when you raise this issue of these uh, companies, you know, uh, funding and supporting uh, anti-abortion measures, that that's important because to me that helps to uh, elucidate the class character of this issue. Because what you just described, Rachel, and even discussing that, what you're describing is a collaboration between the capitalist class and the state. You know what I mean? It's sort of like how um, these big tech companies also collaborate with the state to engage in uh, suppression and censorship of uh, uh, divergent or or dissident um, opinions, views and and voices and things like that. And so, you know, that 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 element of things is always going to be a core factor. And You know, it's important because it's uh, poor working and oppressed women who stand to really feel uh, the brunt of this should it go through, should abortion rights be uh, overturned uh, here in the United States completely. You know what I mean? I mean, this is the same people that are impacted by this uh, uh, formula shortage and things like that. And so it, it, it it's not a coincidence then that we see one class element sort of creating and exacerbating the issue and a completely different class element suffering from the issue. And that's why the whole movement aspect of things, I think, is uh, uh, so important, because when you look at these demonstrations that have happened since um, the, the that draft leak opinion was made public, I mean, what did you see? You saw young women uh, helping to lead these large uh, uh, demonstrations. And what were they saying? They were saying that we won't go back. We will fight back. And so, you know, what that means to me is that this is a group of people who are very aware of the historic struggle for women's liberations and for uh, uh, abortion rights and, you know, who operate and organize in that history and in that spirit and are determined to only move uh, uh, forward 
on the issue and not backward. And even, you know, at uh, demonstrations that I saw here in D.C., and of course, this is just my personal uh, impression, you know, people were very uh, receptive to this connection between abortion rights and other issues that face poor working and oppressed people. So the connection between uh, abortion rights and living wages and housing and, and health care and, and food and all of these fundamental things that uh, people experience and deal with because of capitalist exploitation is all bound up in that as well. And I, uh, I think an important uh, aspect of building that movement. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Rachel Hugh. And Rachel, before we went to the break, uh, uh, I, I was talking some about how uh, the movement to fight for uh, women's liberation and abortion rights has been unfolding. And uh, I, I was wondering your thoughts on not only that, but what the Democrats have not done in this time uh, uh, that, that we've seen this and also what they have done as well. And, and what I'm saying is that one would think that the Democrats would be the natural group within the political mainstream to really want to fight for uh, uh, abortion rights. But we have not seen that. We have not seen any real uh, uh, fight from uh, the Democrats as it pertains to uh, abortion rights. Certainly, they're all saying uh, that they want to you know, do something or have a certain situation come about. But I mean, in a moment like now, or just like with Obama and, and, and others, I mean, the Democrats absolutely have the leverage to codify uh, the Women's Health Protection Act, which, you know, would uh, uh, legalize abortion for uh, all. And but not only do we not see that, but we see them opportunistically using the moment and the the, the political energy around it to fundraise and to try to scare people into, you know, voting for Democrats when it comes time for the midterms, regardless of what the Democrats have actually done. And so for me, it just sort of highlights, Rachel, who the actual fighting force is when it comes to the issue of abortion rights. And it's not the liberals. It's not uh, that wing um, of the ruling class. And uh, as such, it just seems clear that we'll have to really develop uh, an effort outside of those institutions if we really want to see the movement on this uh, problem that we know we need to. Absolutely. I mean, we have to build independent grassroots fighting women's movements. That's it. I mean, and I think it's really important that we just recognize how much we have to take our destiny into our own hands. I mean, there's no other way to talk about it. The Democratic Party as an institution has done nothing, and I mean nothing, on the national stage at this point in a very significant way to defend abortion. They're pinning all of this on Joe Manchin. They're pinning all of this on individuals. And it's just outrageous to me because I, we saw 
what the what the Democratic Party can do to its own people in threatening them and keeping them in line. We see that all the time with the kind of force that they put on the squad, you know, the kind of political pressures that they're exerting on the squad or the political pressures they put on Bernie Sanders. It's very obvious that if the Democratic Party wants to force people to unite, they can do that. And they often do. It's very apparent. So I don't buy the complete and utter lie that they in any way, shape or form did their best. And it's just, well, it's out of their hands. That's that's not the reality, because the reality is that the Democratic Party has allowed the Overton window in the political discourse in this country to shift so far right, we have no conception of what is even left. I mean, that's the reality. When we think about how this whole pushback against abortion even began, I mean, the evangelicals, which is kind of an interesting history, but the evangelicals actually didn't even start fighting against abortion. They originally actually started fighting against segregation. That was their main political point in their first foray into right-wing politics. But anybody who's been a politician in this country for the last 50 years, 30 years, 20 years, has seen just how aggressive the right-wing has been, how much it's been allowed to proliferate, and how much it's been allowed to grow. I mean, since the Reagan era, even, you can look back and see that the, the moment that Reagan began to pair up with the evangelical right wing and have this really weird, like, they bred together this like awful, just super religious, super conservative thought line of thinking alongside deregulation because it suits like this hyper capitalistic agenda. It's just wild to me to see that kind of pairing come together. And where were the Democrats then? Where were they blowing the whistle then? I mean, it was so obvious for so long what was going to happen. And I think that to me, what we have to take away from that, that they've allowed the rise of the right, whether we're talking about the, the, the right wing that's attacking abortion, attacking women's rights, or the same exact right wing, the same exact groups, actually, literally the same groups. I mean, the Alliance Defending Freedom and the Federalist Society are the two most notable organizations that have funded and been behind these anti-abortion attacks. And, and then the ADF is actually also behind the Don't Say Gay Bill. They're all behind the same attacks on LGBTQ people. These organizations have been allowed to proliferate for so long. And I just, I want to drive that point home of just how deep the failure of the Democratic Party is to allow this kind of ridiculous right-wing movement, which was once very small and very isolated, to reach this kind of level of mainstream. Like I've been thinking about that so much because the failure of the Democrats to stand up to do anything against the right means that the only force left has to be us. And I think that I feel very strongly that we need to feel that even though what's happening in the U.S. and the potential overturn of Roe v. Wade really presents what people might feel is an unprecedented situation in the U.S., you know, going back in this way, in the world and in, in the entire working class, the global working class struggle, it's not unprecedented. It's really, you know, there are many other countries where they have fundamentalist governments, they have fundamentalist dictatorships, they have this kind of push and pull, they have outlawed abortion. And that doesn't mean that you give up. It doesn't mean that you stop. I mean, I'm very inspired, especially by the women in Poland who have historically gone on strike. They have done so much to defend their right to abortion, despite it being so consistently under attack, even though they used to have the right to abortion <laughs> under the Soviet Union. So there's there's a lot of different things, too, or they, they had more rights under the Soviet Union. But nonetheless, I'll say that that history goes back and forth. And we are the actors of history. We're not the, 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 the people who just watch. Yeah, definitely. And I was also just thinking about how a few years ago here in the U.S., it was Nancy Pelosi 
that said that the issue of abortion should not be a litmus test for who Democrats support in different uh, elections. In other words, uh, people should not, and the Democrats as an institution also, should not base um, uh, their support on a candidate on their stance on abortion. And the Democrats, uh, right up until this very day, um, have been backing some uh, anti-abortion candidates. I mean, uh, you see people like Jim Clyburn, old Grandpappy Jim, he's been supporting uh, Representative Henry Queller uh, uh, in Texas, who has this history of anti-abortion politics, and he, he'll actually be um, taking part in, in a runoff race against uh, a progressive Aggressive, uh, Jessica Cisneros, who's uh, a pro-choice and things like this. And so I think that even that also sort of uh, uh, exposes the reality of uh, how the Democrats sort of view the abortion issues, like so many other, something that they're more than willing to use opportunistically, but not actually fight for. But we have a couple of callers on the line here. First up is Alex. Tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, hey, um, so I was just wondering, so how do you feel about in the in the absence of any real progress made by the Democrats and in the in the, the kind of situation they leave us in, which is uh, defending against reaction? Do you feel that the progress made in socialist nations is really kind of the only place for us to point to, and it's, and it's kind of important? For example, in Cuba with their new family code that I think is going to be you know enacted by referendum, and it has thousands of like grassroots amendments and, and things like that, or, or even the Soviet Union, as you mentioned, I think was the first nation to legalize abortion, just things like that in terms of looking forward in terms of our rhetoric too, instead of just having to continually defend against these rhyming attacks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Alex. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next, we have Franny. Tell us what's on your mind. Hello. Hey. Hey, Franny, go ahead. Hey, how are you? Well, first time caller, long time chatter. Um, I am just wondering if it's possible to, and how we could go about leveraging this moment to when people are upset about losing the right to abortion to connect the intersectionality dots for people and kind of expand their minds. <laughs> That's it. Right. Well, thanks a lot, Franny. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Always glad to have you in the chat also. Uh, Rachel, a couple of interesting questions here uh, about, you know, uh, uh, the, the issue of abortion rights in socialist countries and also uh, connecting the issue of abortion to other pressing issues. For sure. I mean, I think to start with the intersectional question, I mean, I was alluding to it a little bit earlier, but I think it's really important history for people to understand about the, the rise of the, the, the right wing evangelicals. They've started in an anti-segregation movement. That was their main issue. It's actually kind of scary when you look at it, because the whole concept of religious freedom, like this whole argument, this line of argument that they've been using. I mean, we think about Hobby Lobby, you think about the, the attacks on abortion, the attacks on LGBTQ people. All of these attacks are based on this idea of religious freedom freedom. But originally, they started that actually after a Supreme Court case in 1971. The evangelical right started to whip up their base around this and saying, well, you know what, I, I guess let's. it's time for us to finally get political. Actually, Paul Weyrich, who was this religious conservative, just like just 
right winger who was also somebody who was the founder, co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, which is there's a lot to get into there. And he's really one of the early architects of this fundamentalist right wing movement. He saw that opportunity, which is why in 1971, it was the Green v. Connolly ruling, actually, that they got involved. And, and the ruling said that segregation and private schools, religious private schools are not tax exempt from segregation. And that's why the evangelicals got so involved. There was actually a school in um, college in Greenville, South Carolina. It was called the Bob Jones University that said that the Bible literally said they had to segregate because racism, I guess, is mandated by the Bible. And so they had apparently had the right to, to fight and continue to be tax exempt because of their religious freedom. And so I think it's really important to draw those connections. When we talk about intersectionality, it's both drawing the connections that the people that are attacking us literally are attacking all of us. These are people who are not only defined as a, a hate group, I mean, the ADF is considered a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, but these are people who are, are viciously racist, who are viciously anti-LGBTQ and viciously anti-woman in every way, shape and form. They are against the working class and the vast majority of working class people. And so I think it's so important that we tie together the fact that we all have the same enemy and it's not just the right wing. The greater capitalist system is is truly what our enemy is because the greater capitalist system is the one that makes sure that women can't eat in this society, that we have no place to live, that we are under constant attack at our jobs. We are under constant attack in every single way, shape and form. So I do think intersectionality is very important and there are many ways to make those ties between who's attacking us and why we have so much to gain by standing together, but also understanding that you know black women in America in particular are the ones who are primarily under attack with these abortion laws. Who will face the most serious and devastating consequences will be black women. And we need to be really clear and understanding that. If, and, and also in particular, working class women, poor women, period, because wealthy women will be able to fly to another state and get an abortion, but that's not the vast majority of women. So that's my first point to that, that question. And to the second question about socialism, I think that it's really important to understand that socialism is the only path forward for women's liberation. And that doesn't mean that every socialist country has the best policies for women. I really appreciate mentioning Cuba because Cuba has some incredible policies that defend women in, in so many ways. I mean, they have incredible initiatives to, to empower, uplift LGBTQ people, to offer transgender affirming surgery. I mean, there's just so many things that Cuba is doing, which the United States in so many ways really can't even hold a candle to on the front of domestic violence, on the front of just the, the uh, having women in government. I mean, just like literally everything Cuba is doing so much better, but it's it's not even necessarily an, like enough, right? We, what we have to do is we have to build a socialist movement in the United States. I mean, it's, I'm saying it's not enough to look to another country and say that, that, you know, it's happening there and that's where it exists. We have to recognize that we have to build socialism here in the United States. And it's possible. We have to build an organization. And I believe very strongly build a party. We have to build a socialist party in the United States that can be the, the hub, the, the real power of the working class. It can be an institution of the working class and an institution that upholds and defends the rights of women in every way, shape and form. And so I think there's a it's a, it's a very big question of, of what women's liberation really looks like. But I think that when we start looking at models like the Soviet Union, which had collective care centers, I mean, they had centers where you would literally, women would collectivize 
just house household tasks like cooking. There were there were collective kitchens. There were collective childcare options. There were so many ways in which the 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 Soviet Union tackled attempting to lift the burden off of women's shoulders, let alone provide like legal enshrined rights for women. So there are so many models throughout history we can look to to really encourage us and uplift the kind of things that we can build. But we can build it here, and it's it's so much. There's so much. But I just that's I'll just say that we can build it here, and that we have to be serious and we have to understand that the attacks that are coming on us are not going to stop just because they're outrageous. They're going to continue. Yeah, that's definitely true. All of that is true. But I'm I'm, I'm particularly glad, Rachel, that you pointed out that it is Black women um, and particularly poor Black women. And I, I think I'm going to say Indigenous women as well and poor Latinx women who will be the most harmed by these kinds of legislation. And, and, I, and I think that's important when we're talking about connecting these uh, other issues to this issue of reproductive justice, because, I, you know, it, it kind of annoyed me seeing these women in these handmaid's tale, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, get ups at these protests for reproductive rights. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to tell you why. Because for too long in this country in particular, the idea that reproductive freedom has been infringed upon is only put in the framework of the modern white woman's threat of access to abortion and her bodily autonomy being taken away. But if we look at the history of this country, the fact that indigenous women and their families were absolutely decimated, their children taken from them by the agents of the government that stole their land and tried to eliminate the Indian in their children. Uh, and and the, the Indian uh, Health Service was involved in sterilizing indigenous women and taking their children from them and adopting them out to white families under the guise that, you know, indigenous women could not take care of their children up until the 2000s, I think we have to stop centering just the plight of white women or, you know, this mythological idea of uh, the handmaid's tale, which is some fictional story that, you know, Margaret Atwood wrote. It's a great story. But the truth is, I mean, African girls <laughs> were uh, systematically raped and had their children taken from them repeatedly until they could not have children anymore during enslavement. And we see how the system continues to criminalize and punish poor Black women for being poor Black women in the way that the system continues to take black children away from their mothers when they are in economic duress that this system creates. So I think that if we're gonna have this conversation, Rachel, about connecting all of the dots, we, we've got to take this fictionalized notion uh, that people have decided to bring into this conversation of, oh, this is like Handmaid's Tale. No, this is not like some fictional story that <laughs> Margaret Atwa uh, Atwood wrote, Atwater, I think. That's, it's a, this isn't a fictional story that she wrote. This is, this is the result of the very founding of this country and how Black women, Indigenous women, and our bodies have never belonged to us in 
the, the manifest destiny that this country was founded upon. Certainly, Jackie. And, you know, it's kind of funny about The Handmaid's Tale, because I, I, I definitely feel that it's always like middle aged white ladies who are just really feeling themselves like, like, <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. It's like they all oh, they bring the red and like, you know, like I, I understand where they're coming from in terms of what they're trying to, to put out there. It's kind of like the whole Star Wars resistance thing that like came out um, in the anti-Trump stuff. It's like an interesting melding of pop culture. But I, I actually want to bring this forward about The Handmaid's Tale. I recently started watching it because I, I, I didn't want to watch it. For the same reasons you're talking about it's just like oh i kind of eye roll so quickly like oh this is kind of corny like i just it's just kind of corny you know and like it's just because it's all these white ladies who are just so worked up specifically about the handmaid's tale so then i watched it and then I, I read some things from the director which i thought were interesting and I, I think are are actually worthwhile to share in the context of this conversation that the director actually talked about that the target audience of that show was white women which i thought was interesting like the audience that was targeted by that show was white women and it was created in a time of understanding that white women were voting for Trump and that it's really it was meant to wake up I that was the director's thoughts it was really meant to target those women who are betraying other women to think about those consequences and she talked actually about how everything that's portrayed in the show that's primarily of course in the show being done to white women has actually been done before throughout history and I think if you watch the show and you really see some of the examples it, it you see exactly what you're talking about and I think that it makes it real for some people People who might not necessarily under, be willing to open their heart or whatever it is, just open their eyes to how horrifically women of color have been treated in this country. But it, it is so disturbing. It's a very disturbing show for a lot of reasons. But in particular, it's very disturbing because these things happened. But they happened to women of color. That's who it happened to. And it's just, it's so hard to think about, you know, being systemically raped. I mean, that's the existence and the legacy of what it means to be a black woman in America in terms of the, the oppression that have that black women have faced you know I of course don't know exactly what that means but I mean in terms of, of oppression but I think that it's important that the the types of stories that the handmaid's tale are telling that we recognize that they've not only happened in history but they've been condoned by laws and that the that the right wing and the ascension of the right wing is incredibly serious and I think that's part of what people are trying to get at I think that's why they do it it's like you know this could be us in the future but it's also been us in the past and the director explicitly says that, that these are moments that are taken from time of things that have really happened. Like, I think a lot about even just the how many women have had their babies taken from them uh, through the process of adoption in the 1950s. A lot of women who were single mothers or, you know, women of color. I mean, whatever it might be, like literally just the, all the different ways in which working class poor women have been under attack. They used to have their children taken from them because they were considered ungodly and their children were given away to, to wealthy white parents. And there's a very, very long history of that in this country. So it's not new, but that is my aside on The Handmaid's Tale. But I agree with you on the point of intersectionality and perhaps for anyone who is a fan of the show to look deeper and, and recognize that the history that's being shown is real, but it happened to black women, it happened to indigenous women, and it's still happening to women all around the globe. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back. 
to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Rachel Hugh is here. And, you know, uh, Rachel, uh, shifting gears a little bit to some issues concerning uh, U.S. propaganda, we know that recently the Biden administration announced the um, establishment uh, within the Department of Homeland Security entitled the Disinformation Governing Board, which was you know, purported uh, to have as its mission the battling of so-called disinformation and had at its helm a uh, disinformation warrior by the name of uh, Nina uh, Jenkowitz. And uh, interestingly, the DHS has now decided to um, uh, basically put the board on pause and to sort of uh, reconfigure it after, uh, I think, a lot of criticism. And uh, Nina Jankowitz, who I just mentioned a moment ago, has actually resigned. And it seems that a lot of the problem is uh, Jankowitz's uh, uh, history herself as uh, a disinformation warrior. And it's relevant to today, of course, as this happens within the context of um, the information war the U.S. is engaged in with Russia uh, around the the war in Ukraine. But, you know, Jankowitz used to work for this group called uh, Stop Fake, which literally uh, whitewashed uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazis back during the time of the Maidan coup. And as it turns out, this is uh, this is the same company is uh, a partner with Facebook around uh, misinformation and things like that. And so it, it, it feels, you know, this may sound cliche, but I, I mean, it, it feels sort of oddly uh, dystopian in a way to see that this, uh, board was even being organized. And according to uh, current White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre, um, she was you know, pointing out that they're not disbanding the group, but merely pausing it. She said, quote, there's been a mischaracterization from outside forces. And so what we're going to do is pause it and do an assessment. But the work doesn't stop. And so, you know, what Miss Jean-Pierre seems to be implying here, Rachel, is that, you know, there's like a smear campaign against the disinformation board. And so they're going to reconfigure some things and come on back. But I think in truth, people were just seeing this for what it obviously was just a further um, sort of institutionalizing within the state of uh, this suppression and censorship campaign that has really ramped up uh, uh, in the time since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I'm just curious, you know, Rachel, what you think, I mean, not only uh, of this board and who they chose to lead it, but I mean, what do you think uh, of the board? How do you see it as even uh, being situated into our current political moment? I mean, certainly. I think I think this board, it's interesting how the Biden administration had put this board forward as if it's some sort of like, like it's going to fight the racist propaganda. Like it's kind of, I think we should actually pay attention to the framing of the way the Biden administration framed this because this framing isn't going anywhere. It's going to be coming back. I mean, I've seen it before many times in the media defending a variety of different issues. But I think in particular, the idea that Nina, Nina Jankovic, she's actually a author and she wrote a book called How to Be a 
woman online surviving abuse, harassment, and how to fight back. But that they're picking someone like her with her her for her actual history, not for that. But what you see presented is this idea that they're looking to stop the the kind of right wing disinformation that so many people in this country are angry about, and they're trying to tap into that. And I think it didn't go well for them. But I, I saw that that was kind of the ways in which they were trying to to spin this. But the truth of what this board is is that this board is not about combating right wing information. I mean, it's not about combating any of the things that many of us are rightfully frustrated with the anti vax kind of propaganda that you see that's fake. I mean, just so much of these these crazy right wing conspiracy theories that come out that are just just actually just racist. Ultimately, it's not about combating any of that. What this propaganda board was supposed to be or this disinformation board was supposed to be was really about bringing together all of the the, the people that worked, especially on on manufacturing so much of the information that we got in 2014 out of Ukraine, ha- learning from their expertise to do it again. I mean, they, they were trying to reassure people by saying, oh, well, the focus is going to be about Russian propaganda and Iranian propaganda and Chinese propaganda. And they're naming that. So by naming that, it says to me, they're really thinking about collecting information of how they, in so many ways, just produced the entire Russiagate phenomenon and how to do it again. They're looking to institutionalize that knowledge somewhere. So it isn't a surprise that they pick someone like Yankovic to be the one to, to be the face of it. it she tried on, on the face of it. She looked like maybe she would be somebody who cared about, you know, oppressed peoples. I mean, she even said recently about this was a while ago um, now, but she said recently about Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter that she felt she was she was shuddered to think about what would happen if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms and what that would look like for marginalized communities. Like they're really putting her forward like she's on the front lines of defending marginalized communities when what she's on the front lines of is ultimately building a, a, a disinformation apparatus to successfully create this type of crazy war propaganda. I mean, to speak a little bit to Stop Fake, which was the organization that she was a part of, and they didn't just whitewash the Azov Battalion and other, you know, other forces. I, I think it's really important to, to pay attention to specifically the kind of complete lies that they were putting forward at the time, because it's really scary to me that this organization stop fake is the one that partners with Facebook. So they're the ones who are deciding what's yes and what's no. And they're the ones who are greenlighting like literally like racist propaganda. I mean, in 2018, stop fake actually defended C14, which is a neo-Nazi gang that conducted pogroms, like horrific pogroms of the Roma people in Ukraine, which for people who don't know, they're they're a marginalized community, a historically very marginalized community. And so it's kind of wild to me that they were willing to to defend literally a neo-Nazi group that conducted pogroms. We need to look deeper into who these people are, because if these are the people that are supposed to be the the thoughts and the minds and and the greatest thinkers around how to manufacture propaganda, I mean, it's very telling. It's very telling what's to come. So that's kind of my immediate reaction to this. And I'm happy to hear she stepped down, but who are they going to pick next? It's clear that the administration wants to create this kind of board and to start institutionalizing the type of knowledge they've gained for, for creating war propaganda in the 21st century. You know, I got to tell you, I'm really tired of these people using <laughs> my quote unquote minorities for all of their terrible dystopian, uh, you know, Orwellian ideas. I mean, because honestly, no matter what form this, 
reconfigured board comes back in, it's still going to be Joe Biden's Ministry of Information. That's really what it's going to be, Rachel. And and there's there's just no getting around the fact that uh, this uh, new DHS uh, uh, office is literally going to be printing lies for the Biden administration now. And I, there, there's no way to get around that. I, I just really wish they'd stop using us and, and the guys of <laughs> protecting us uh, to do their, their dystopian dirty work. Yeah, no, I wish you wish it's because it's just yeah, that's the thing that's most sickening to me, because like the weird partisan politics around this have been so frustrating because the right wing is like, you know, like they're the ones screaming Orwellian and they're supposed to be the crusaders of truth. Like, it's just like, like what is happening here? Like even Stephen King defended he's that he stands with Nina. He stands with her because she's, I guess, I, I, I don't know, like the one who's out here defending like oppressed peoples. Like, it's just a weird framing to me. Me, that's very scary. I mean, she actually also wrote the book How to Lose the Information War, which goes, she speaks Russian and she feels great about that, I guess. But she <laughs> examines how five Western governments have dealt with Russian disinformation. So she is an expert, but she's not an expert in what they're portraying her to be. And it's, yeah, I, I'm sick of it. It's disgusting. Yeah, totally. And um, it, it's just such a transparent move. You, you know what I mean? In terms of putting this whole board together, which I think is why excuse me, the response to it um, has been what it was in terms of all of this criticism. But, you know, I think we should be paying attention to the fact, particularly as organizers and movement people, but paying attention to the fact that um, we clearly see um, the capitalist imperialist U.S. state operating in a particular way in this moment. Uh, and it 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 seems to me that a lot of what the U.S. is doing, and really the whole of the new Cold War as a phenomenon. If we really get down to um, the nitty gritty of what uh, the U.S. is actually after and and what it's trying to do, despite all these pronouncements, despite um, this attempt at skewing the consciousness and making it seem like, okay, well, we're done with uh, uh, the so-called war on terror so uh, now we're going to wage a battle between democracy and, quote unquote, authoritarianism. And this is the, the, the basis for justifying the, these out and out attacks on countries like Russia, like China, like Cuba, which, of course, has been happening for years and all these sorts of things. But it's all about the United States and really the, the capitalist class of the United States trying to make sure that the U.S. remains in control of the people's lands, resources, money, and politics of the earth. Basically, this is an attempt to protect the empire and to ensure that it can continue to be able to spread and uh, uh, deepen its control and deepen the vice-like grip that it has on so many things on this planet. And so that is why it is so important that uh, these attacks continue to ramp up. That is why you, uh, the, the U.S. state has to collaborate with these tech companies to, you know, block RT and Sputnik in, in uh, the European Union to deplatform Radio Sputnik here uh, in the United States, uh, PayPal freezing the accounts of um, uh, different independent 
journalists, uh, you know, all these smear uh, 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 videos and, and articles and things that have been coming out. This is all funneling to the exact same effort. It is part and parcel of the geostrategic plans for U.S. imperialism. And we have to be careful to make sure that we always remember within that context, because, you know, if you listen to, uh, you know, the, the corporate media in this country or, or to the U.S. government, well, then, you know, you, you only hear a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the story. You don't get uh, the proper political and historical context that you need to understand uh, really uh, anything is <laughs> something that you would need. But even as it pertains to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's so much uh, there that has to be gotten into and to understood before you can really get a clear idea of what's happening right now. And there has been an intense an intentional attempt at keeping the American people away from platforms that will give the fullness of that context and to really explain this history. But see, this is why political education is important. This is why uh, organizing is important. And this is why within our political work, we have to be sure to connect the uh, issues that uh, face working people, these so-called bread and butter issues, to the issues of U.S. imperialism and expound upon how the suffering that the U.S. creates elsewhere on the earth absolutely uh, blows back and come home to roost here within the U.S. So our fate is bound up with the fate of the international struggling people of this earth. And if we are wise and if we are paying attention and if we are serious about bringing about a new society focused on people's needs in this country and in this earth, then we have to deepen and strengthen those relationships and do our work as we should. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. One thank Rachel Hughes so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.